Let's go to Palm Beach, Florida, where James Zirin is standing by. James Zirin is a leading litigator, having served as an assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York in the criminal division. He's written multiple books. His latest is Plaintiff in Chief, A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits. Thank you for doing this, James. Delighted to be with you, David. We had you on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and uh, you were kind enough to agree to come on this show. I want to talk about your book. You pretty much say that Donald Trump's expertise, what he brings to the White House, is litigation. That uh, I was being, I was being perhaps uh, sarcastic because uh, he's uh, uh, not a lawyer, and uh, he has expertise in litigation only because he has a lot of experience in litigation and in what I call asymmetrical warfare in litigation, which he's been practicing for 40 years without anyone really calling him out on it. And that's what I tried to do in the book. Without anybody calling him out on it. So I just went through a divorce. One of the things I learned during my divorce was that Donald Trump knew something I didn't know until I was done with my mm -hmm. divorce. And that is he who has the most power in our court system wins. Now, I don't know. I don't want to get into criminal litigation, but I'm talking about in a civil lawsuit. This was my impression. Nobody's looking out for anyone or anything other than money. That all that matters in civil litigation, and that's what a divorce is, is money and the lawyers don't care about justice they don't care about fairness it's just money and coming out of that as donald trump was president i realized well he got that early on that this is all about who has the most money and bills are something that don't have to be paid because sue me you'll lose and that requires money yeah. And, and so uh, I agree with you. I knew someone. He was a very prominent entertainment lawyer and he hurt his back and he had a uh, cocktail party and he greeted his guests uh, on a lying down on a, uh, a chaise long. And um, I came over to, uh, I guess, to kiss the ring. And um, he said, you know, Jim, I've been thinking about my life since I hurt my back. And it's all about money. And what isn't about money? That's about money, too. <laughs> so, uh, that is not only our legal system. It's our uh, commercial system, of course. And it's uh, actually uh, has a great deal to do with um, our medical system, because doctors are competing with one another for uh, uh, positions in hospitals and um, so that they can draw uh, larger uh, fees, greater compensation um, and it's all politicking and jockeying for position and because you get a doctor who is for example a chief of service doesn't mean you necessarily get the best doctor or the most experienced doctor in uh, whatever the service is it's regrettable. Yeah. In your book, Plaintiff in Chief, A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits, you started writing this when he was running for president, I believe. And you've documented, you went through all his lawsuits. There may be more, right? 
3,500 is conservative, right? USA Today said 3,500, and the American Bar Association said 4,000. I took the more conservative figure. I didn't count them all. I don't think anyone has counted them all. It's an estimate. Um, and I didn't um, go into uh, 3,500 lawsuits. Uh, I went into the types of lawsuits he seemed to be involved in. He had lawsuits with partners. He had lawsuits with creditors. He had lawsuits with contractors. Uh, he was the target of the federal and state investigations, money laundering and other things. He was, uh, of course, he went into bankruptcy five times in Atlantic City, where he sought the protection of the bankruptcy court. Uh, so he was uh, steeped in litigation. He was up to his ears in litigation. I start the story with the, uh, the tale of the um, discrimination in housing case that was brought against him and his father by the Nixon Justice Department, where he was represented by the infamous Roy Cohn, a this, lawyer who... Yeah, this was the New York City Human Rights Commission that brought... Well, no, it. it was the Federal Department of Justice uh, brought the case uh, seeking to enjoin him from race discrimination in housing. Right. I don't know whether the New York City Urban... I think the New York City Urban League was helping... Uh, the I, I think it was the, I think it was the new New York City Human Rights Commission that turned it over to the Justice Department. Well, quite possibly, but yeah. they had him dead to rights. Uh, there were testers uh, who went to the uh, rental units applying for uh, a um, an apartment, and uh, the black testers were turned away, and the white testers were shown apartments. So the discrimination was very very clear. Uh, Cone uh, before he met Cone. Uh, other lawyers advised Trump to settle the case, but Cohn said fight, and that's where he learned uh, the tools of asymmetrical warfare, of weaponizing the law. He learned them from Roy Cohn, and there were a number of tools. One is uh, always counterattack. In the case of the race discrimination case, they counterclaimed against the government for $100 million. That was speedily dismissed, but it had the, the tactical advantage of setting the government back on its heels. Uh, they tried to undermine the lawyers from the Department of Justice who had brought the case. Uh, so that's the second rule, which is try to attack your adversary, not by saying that uh, anything to do with the merits of the case, but attack your adversary personally, attack your adversary uh, for the way that he's conducted the investigation, the process that was involved. Uh, and um, another is to work the press. Uh, he did it in the race discrimination case. There was a press release immediately after uh, they, uh, Roy Cohn came into the case. Um, and uh, through Cohn, Trump developed many contacts in the media who were always interested in uh, stories, even false stories, uh, that um, he wanted to spread around about his enemies. Well, he, uh, what, what happened with the Justice Department on Trump Village... They had a settlement and Trump beat the Justice Department to the press and said, we won when, in fact, it was a settlement. Yes. So and in fact, uh, he lost. It was the, the biggest uh, discrimination in housing case that the Nixon, as it happened, Justice Department had ever brought. And um, the uh, result of it was they, uh, the Trumps agreed not to discriminate anymore. They agreed to take an ad in the paper saying they were equal opportunity landlords. And um, they uh, 
settle the case without admitting or denying the allegations. So Trump said, well, I didn't admit anything, so therefore I won the case. That, of course, was false. And um, some of the neighborhood newspapers in New York, like El Diario and others, uh, said uh, that Trump, of course, had lost the case, which he had. Right. And there was a fine. Did he ever end up paying it? No, there was uh, there was no fine. There was some he, there was cost involved in taking the ads of the paper. And um, Trump was haggling over the size of the type. He said it costs more money if it's in large type. <laughs> uh, the government said, well, we need it to be large enough so people will see it. And uh, eventually they reached uh, an agreement on that score. Actually, after the case was over, uh, the Trumps continued to discriminate in housing and the government brought them back to court. And that was again settled. So it just shows his litigious nature, uh, which had nothing to do with the truth, had nothing to do with justice. It had nothing to do with doing business in an efficient way. Lots of companies have litigation. They settle the litigation or they try the case if they think that's what's indicated, and then they move on. But uh, Trump wanted to litigate, litigate, litigate everything to death. Where's my Roy Cohn, he shouted. Where's my Roy Cohn? Who was Roy Cohn? And most importantly, what did Roy Cohn's father do for a living? He was a judge. Right. Um, The whole saga of Roy Cohn is told in a documentary film, actually, in which I'm one of the talking heads called Where's My Roy Cohn? It's on Netflix. And you can trace the career of Roy Cohn from his childhood in the Bronx, uh, from uh, how his mother's family money bought political uh, influence, put his father on the bench. uh, And he really came from a despicable kind of background where politics was not something uh, that was an extension of uh, people, of issues that uh, people were interested in. Politics was the pursuit of power mm-hmm. and well, believing in power. Uh, he uh, got himself appointed an assistant U.S. attorney and was one of the prosecutors of the Rosenberg case. They, of course, were executed. Uh, Cone bragged, if I could have, I'd have pulled the switch myself. Uh, both husband and wife were both executed. And uh, from there, on the backs of the Rosenbergs, he became chief counsel to Senator McCarthy, uh, where, of course, he uh, specialized in smearing people in the State Department and the government or elsewhere who were accused of being communists or having communist associations. Little known is the fact that he also um, conducted something called the Lavender Investigation, uh, which was an investigation designed to ferret gays. Uh, in those days, everyone was closeted to ferret gaze uh, out of the government. Uh, what was not known at the time, but became quite apparent later, was that Roy Cohn himself was a closeted gay. Mm-hmm. Fact is, uh, many people think that Senator McCarthy was a closeted gay. And um, so it's totally hypocritical for him to try to uh, go after gays in the government. But he did it anyway. Later on, when he was in New York and he was quite a political power, and these are in the days where he represented Donald Trump, uh, he, through his political influence, was able to get tabled a bill in the city council which would have given gays uh, equal um, access to uh, uh, public places, restaurants, hotels, and prevent discrimination based on sexual orientation. And that was tabled for many years because of the uh, insidious influence of Roy Cohn. 
Joe McCarthy was destroyed after the Army McCarthy hearings, which stemmed from Roy Cohn's crush on, I think the guy's name was David Shine. Is that? The, You're quite correct. And they were, quite. they were traveling throughout Europe on taxpayers' dime, examining State Department libraries. But it was really, some say, Roy Cohn just trying to spend time with David Shine. How come Roy Cohn survived the Army McCarthy hearings and Joe McCarthy didn't? What what did Roy Cohn know and or learn? Well, I think he learned that um, if you push things too far, uh, you can go down in flames. And that's what happened to McCarthy, of course. But why didn't he uh, go down in flames, though? Because he was not a, a public official. He was a lawyer. He went back to New York to practice law. And he had a tremendous amount of political influence. He knew all the polls. He knew business people. He knew everyone in the media. He threw a birthday party every year at which everyone attended, including mobsters. Uh, Joey Adams uh, quipped about the birthday party. Uh, if you're indicted, you're invited. <laughs> and uh, he uh, uh, had people, he represented the Archdiocese of New York. He was very close to Cardinal Spellman. Now, what, was, uh, what were the rumors about Cardinal Spellman? Well, there were rumors of, that persist that Cardinal Spellman was gay. This is all part of the gay underworld. Because remember, Roy Cohn was a lawyer, and in the, the world of the 1970s and 1980s, uh, lawyers generally uh, who were gay were not out of the closet. And to the very end, Cohn denied his homosexuality. Uh, he said it would be inconsistent with the kind of tough uh, persona that he wanted to cultivate for his clients. And... Um, he uh, eventually was afflicted with AIDS, which he denied, uh, said he had liver cancer, then said he was cancer-free, which was true. <laughs> and uh, it was uh, kind of a, uh, a half-truth. And he uh, died of AIDS and uh, shortly after, three weeks after he was disbarred. After he died? No, no, he was disbarred first, and then he died three weeks later. Three weeks. It took took that long to disbar him. Did it took he that long. The disbarment proceedings against him were really pretty, uh, the misconduct was pretty glaring. He stole money from a client. Uh, he made false statements to the Washington Bar to get admission to the bar. Uh, he um, went into a hospital room where uh, um, uh, Louis Rosensteel was dying and got him to sign a codicil that was Will. Uh, Rosenstein was a multi-millionaire, naming Roy Cohn as the executor so he could get executor's commissions. Well, of course, the signature on the codicil was hardly legible, and, um, the, uh, and of course, was disallowed by the court, uh, but uh, the Bar Association thought that was, of course, um, uh, terribly unethical conduct. We're and it was based on, on, on that that uh, Kung, and other things, perhaps, that Kung was disbarred. Uh, we're talking with James Zirin, author of the book Plaintiff in Chief, A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits. I don't mean to harp on Roy Cohn, but I'm doing this to make a larger point, actually. Did he pay taxes, Roy Cohn? Did he ever? No, he actually, the, the, the IRS had a, a $6 million judgment against him when he died, and uh, he pretty much died penniless. He had no children, obviously, and he had no relatives and uh, whom he wanted to 
favor. And of course, he had no estate because he um, the money that he earned from fees was quickly spent uh, on uh, the high living that he liked to engage in. So the question I have for you is Donald Trump a product of our system? He is he the problem, or is it a system that he just learned from the master how to master? Well, I think it's a combination of both, because I think he was ready, willing, and able to work the system for everything that it was worth. Remember, Roy Cohn was indicted three times, and he was acquitted three times. He knew how to beat the system, and that was very attractive to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump was so enamored of him, he had a photograph, framed photograph of uh, Roy Cohn in his desk. And when someone would come asking for money, a creditor, uh, or somebody else, he were a contractor, uh, he would reach into his desk drawer, take out the picture of Roy Cohn and said, do you want to face him in court? Right. And the guy would run away with his tail between his legs. So in part, it was the fear that um, Trump was able, which in uh, Cohn was the same way, the fear he was able to instill in people if they uh, crossed him or took any action against him. You know, the IRS, the IRS went after Scientology because it's tax free. It's a religion. And the head of the IRS paid a serious price for going after Scientology. They they did everything they could to destroy his personal life. Uh, Roy Cohen didn't pay his taxes. He owed the government money when he died. Three weeks, you say, before his death, he was finally disparred by the uh, the, 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 the appellate, bar? The division, the appellate division, uh, which is a division of the Supreme Court in uh, New York State, and uh, it was the same court on which his father had sat as a judge, quite ironically. And that file, that disbarment file, was gathering dust in uh, the... Uh, offices uh, and files of the Bar Association until it was activated by uh, a friend of mine, uh, Marty London, uh, who uh, activated the case and uh, made sure there was a trial. Now, Donald Trump uh, testified as a character witness at the disbarment. Uh, He swore under oath that uh, Cohn had a, a reputation for honesty, integrity, truth, and veracity. And in fact, um, uh, Cohn had a reputation that was just the opposite. His reputation was as a shady, crooked lawyer. So what does it take to get a lawyer disbarred? Because I went through five divorce attorneys, one of whom was so despicable, he actually mm. said to me, oh, and by the way, don't bother reporting me to the to the bar. I am the bar. I handle the disbarments. So the problem is uh, there's a problem with our legal profession, isn't there? There's a, um, an endemic problem uh, with the disciplinary system. It's very easy to get a um, storefront lawyer disbarred who steals $500 from a client. It's very hard to get a lawyer on Wall Street disbarred or a Roy Cohn who has many powerful friends uh, and, and who is political. And so uh, no one has a great appetite 
for taking on people like this because uh, there could be all sorts of reprisals. Yeah, I mean, there's money. Now, you served as assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York in the criminal division. That would be a uh, federal post? Yes, it's a federal post. Yeah, so you were with the Justice Department in the criminal division. There is political power, there's financial power, and then there's the power of raw power, the mafia. And I believe Rudy Giuliani served in the Southern District of New York in the criminal division. Is that correct? That's correct. And and he took on the mafia. Yes, he did. Were did you there when he was... No, I'd left by then, but he did a marvelous job in um, prosecuting the five families uh, that uh, ran organized crime in New York. Mm-hmm. He did a he did a magnificent job. You say yes, yeah. That's what he made his reputation on. But like Roy Cohn, he was quick with a press conference and quick to claim credit for. Well, I think first place is a legitimate place for uh, the press and public prosecutions because you want to deter like conduct. Uh, you uh, want to uh, impress the public that uh, uh, the uh, that law enforcement is being vindicated uh, and that you're going after crooks. So in uh, high profile cases, U.S. attorneys, district attorneys, uh, police commissioners all get on a podium and um, announce that they have uh, indicted uh, some uh, mafia figure or some bank robber or uh, some drug conspiracy or some mobster, and the public uh, is entitled to know that, and it really strengthens the hand of law enforcement. So I don't denounce uh, the use of the press in um, public prosecutions. Okay, so you have Rudy Giuliani, who was United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, prosecuting the five families. Now he is Donald Trump's lawyer. Donald Trump, it's safe to assume, has, to put it mildly, mob connections. Certainly Roy Cohn introduced him, I think, to the Gambino family in order to pour cement. He certainly, yes, introduced him to, and they were members of the Gambino family, Paul Castellano, who was eventually um, uh, rubbed out in front of um, a Sparks restaurant in New York uh, by John Gotti, uh, and um, uh, Fat Tony Salerno, who uh, both of whom controlled the poured concrete business. It was a cartel in New York at that time. And um, uh, it is said that... um, uh, by uh, David K. Johnston, the journalist, that uh, Salerno and um, uh, Trump met in Cohn's office. Cohn used to invite uh, mafia figures to uh, come to his office and uh, plot their uh, wicked plans in his conference room because he was confident that the Justice Department uh, would not be uh, uh, bugging a lawyer's conference room. And he was correct. Okay, and that's why Trump Tower is made out of concrete and not steel. And not structural steel, exactly. So when Rudy Giuliani serves as Donald Trump's lawyer, and Donald Trump is dealing with Russian mobsters, Ukrainian mobsters, 
what is Rudy Giuliani's obligation as a former United States attorney? Well, he is, he's a lawyer, and he has no greater obligation because he was a former U.S. attorney. Um, but uh, his- Is there a problem? Let me ask you a question. Is there, you know, we talk about the revolving door in the Pentagon. A general leaves and goes and works as a procurement officer. Uh, works A procurement officer over at the Pentagon leaves and then gets a job with Boeing, that, that whole sweetheart deal. There's a problem uh, with, I think, people who work as prosecutors, learn how the government works, and then join a white shoe law firm and use their expertise, what they learned from the other side. Well, they are. Why, they why, are, is, that, why is that allowed? Because they're entitled to take their experience with them when they go from one side of the aisle, if you will, to the other. Who says so? Who says so? Well, our whole system is based on that. I mean, for example, I could go work for Delta Airlines and learn a lot about how to run an airline. Now, um, when I can't take customer lists and trade secrets with me if I go work for American, but all the experience that I uh, have at Delta is relevant to uh, what uh, I might be doing at American. That's why they hire me for my experience and expertise. But wouldn't, wouldn't we be better served? Wouldn't the country be better served if there were guardrails? And, you know, if you are a prosecutor, you cannot leave and take a job defending corporations or criminals. You have to stay a prosecutor. I don't think that would work. In fact, I think that would be unconstitutional. Um, he would, uh, Giuliani's entitled to practice law. He's entitled to have clients. And he's entitled to have clients. He can't be on the other side of a case he was involved in as a prosecutor. But by, isn't, the, isn't, isn't, the, isn't the Southern District of New York, isn't their criminal division entitled to trade secrets as well? Well, these aren't trade secrets. I mean, they may be um, uh, uh, lore as to uh, as to how you do it. Uh, it may uh, give you certain intuitions about how uh, prosecutions work, but they're entitled to take all that with them. Who, entitled, but who says they're entitled? I think the rules of ethics that uh, that govern lawyers. But and, isn't uh, isn't the book Plaintiff in Chief a portrait of Donald Trump in thirty five hundred lawsuits? Haven't we learned that there are no ethics? No, I think we've There are norms. That, there are norms. There are norms, and we've learned that Trump violated norms, was violating them to this very day. We learned that Roy Cohn, rogue lawyers, uh, violate norms. Rogue presidents violate norms. And the legal system should uh, be able to deal with that. It hasn't. Uh, but um, it is the norm that... A uh, defense lawyer can become a prosecutor. This is what happens in England, too. And that a prosecutor can eventually become a defense lawyer. In England, for example, uh, a barrister who is an independent contractor, if you will, uh, can take a brief uh, for the Crown prosecuting a case, even though there's a Crown prosecution service, or 
can um, take a brief for someone who's accused of a crime. Okay. So they're not required to be either prosecutors or defense lawyers, and they can cross over back and forth. Not in the same case, but they can take cases that uh, where the, they may be arguing just the opposite. Uh, let me put you in my hot seat, okay? Yeah. I'd love to be in your hot seat. Okay, you ready? Because now, now it gets hot. Okay. We're talking with James Iron, author of the book Plaintiff in Chief, A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits. And okay, David, it gets too hot. May I just get a drink of water because my throat is dry talking to you? Okay, so, I, I can be good cop and bad cop with you. So it's up to you. We can do this the easy way. Or the, or the hard way, James. Can you hear me? Oh, he's getting uh, a glass of glass of water. Okay. We will. Uh, we're talking with James Zirin, author of the book "Plaintiff in Chief: A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits." And okay, are you here back? I, am. I was just I was just plugging your book. Okay. Well, well, I welcome that. Okay, go ahead. Okay. So uh, I have a, a problem with never Trumpers. I, I think you might be a never. You're in the hot seat now. OK. All right. OK. This is going to get really uncomfortable. I could I can see the beads of sweat and we're doing this through audio. You're a never Trumper. Is that fair to say? Um, I don't know what a never Trumper is. Well, it's so a cer- it's a certain breed of Republican, because you are a Republican. Is that correct, sir? I, I am a Republican, and I fault Trump for the way he's conducted himself in office. I fault Trump for the way he conducted himself before he took office. It's an, I'm critical of his character. Mm-hmm. And um, now, uh, as to the policies he's put in place, uh, they all seem to be working pretty well until the recent uh, pandemic. Uh, but the, pretty much his policies... Certainly, his economic policies were working. The stock market yeah. was soaring. Um, the economy was growing. Unemployment was at an all-time low. Uh, he accomplished a great deal. He was. Um, he, he, you could criticize some of the things he did in foreign policy, but uh, as Henry Kissinger said, um, he has been a considerable president. And he will go down in history as very much a mixed bag. <laughs> A person of uh, low character and a person who accomplished some things and got rid of uh, uh, certain um, practices that had uh, existed in in our government for some time. And uh, when he said he would drain the swamp, in many ways he did drain the swamp, and and that was um, uh, that was something that was worthwhile. So if that's a never Trumper. Um, I don't think so. All right, but, hang uh, on. I'm turning the heat up on your seat. Up. I'm turning it up, and I think you're baiting me, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're baiting me. I don't think you mean what you just said. No, hey, I, I mean what I just said. I'm I, critical of his ethics. I'm critical of his morals. I'm critical of his leadership of the country. Um, and uh, But um, to the extent... Uh, that um, he's accomplished anything. We don't say everything he did was bad. Uh, but um, I would not, um, if you're asking me how I would vote in the next election, I would not choose him as my candidate. Uh, but never Trump, I'm, I'm not really sure what that means. At least. Okay, a, there, there, let me let me tell you what a never Trumper is. 
a never Trumper is somebody like David Frum, who was a speechwriter for George W. Bush. He coined the phrase axis of evil. A never Trumper would be Bill Crystal from PNAC and the Weekly Standard, who invented the invasion of Iraq, who killed Hillary Care. He hates Trump. There are a lot of Republicans who are grossed out by the aesthetics of Donald Trump. I put myself in their camp in many ways. I'm a great admirer of David Frum and also of Bill Crystal and, and David, David Brooks. And David Brooks. Okay, but and, you're but you're unhappy and uh, uh, the heat on the. It's I, if I were you, I would get ready. Here's ready. Here's, here's the tough question. You don't like Donald Trump's morals. How do you separate his policy from his morality? Well, you, excuse me for one I, second. You're still in the hot seat here. You want to mop your brow because it's you can't separate somebody's criminal behavior from their their policy. No, I think they should be prosecuted for their criminal behavior. But while they're awaiting prosecution, if you will, uh, or removal by the electorate, which is certainly what uh, Crystal and uh, Frum would like, uh, while they're waiting uh, for uh, their comeuppance, if they free a uh, prisoner in, uh, from Iran or from uh, North Korea uh, by interceding, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, but don't you think immorality, don't you think criminal behavior bleeds into everything you do, not just not just your 3,500 lawsuits, but also yes, right. how you view the world. It's how he views the world, which is immoral. He has a criminal foreign policy, a criminal domestic policy. It's immoral, amoral, the people he surrounds himself with. So how do I, you how do you I think you can be critical of all those things? Uh, I um, I think I agree with you. that character is destiny. I say that in the book my book and um i think uh, he is a person of low character and of low uh, standards and of abnormal behavior and all that counts in the mix so i think all of that is disqualifying but i think you have to recognize he's done some good things i mean mussolini made the trains run on time so uh i guess you have to leave it at that well so you're not willing to address the systemic problems that created Donald Trump and that allow him to thrive. I, think I, have, I have in the book created the systemic problems because uh, what is absolutely astounding to me as a lawyer is that he was able to get away with what he got away with for uh, 40 years uh, without ever receiving his comeuppance, even Roy Cohn. Eventually, he got his comeuppance um, uh, three weeks before he died of AIDS. And um, but but do, but do you do you believe in a muscular regulatory side of our federal government? Do you believe that the SEC should be regulating corporations and the the Justice Department should be keeping a closer eye on corporations and? Isn't it the responsibility of the federal government to rein in people like Roy Cohn? I would suspect you don't believe that. Uh, well, not necessarily the federal government. It's the responsibility of the Bar Association. And uh, it was the responsibility of the federal government. And um, 
Robert M. Morgenthau indicted Roy Cohn three times. And three but he, times he, he was, wasn't he, through. wasn't Robert Morgan, he was state, not the federal government. Morgan. No, he was federal and state, but he right. was federal when he indicted Roy Cohn, and he was my boss when I was a federal prosecutor. So I knew him very well. Uh, I admired so much his independence from political pressure, either from the right or the left. He played it right down the line uh, based on the facts. Do, do you favor, and, do you favor... Uh, increasing the budget for the IRS. You know, the the IRS is outnumbered by corporations. Would you favor a bigger, a more robust internal revenue service? I'm not a member of Congress, and I can't evaluate uh, the needs of the IRS. I mean, in principle, I think that, uh, you know, we should have taxing authorities and taxing enforcers are equal to the task. Uh, right, but, but but you do know that they've that you know you do know that the that the IRS has been stripped of its finances. They they have the same amount of uh, IRS agents as they had something like thirty years ago, even though the population has been growing. That they're complaining that they're understaffed, underpaid, and overworked. They're aided by technology. They're also aided by the private sector. But you have to. They're you know, aided by the private sector. Getting way down into the weeds and uh, oh, uh, the hot I, seat. I really, would, I would have to. <laughs> that's not the hot seat. Would, oh. I would have to study all these issues. I mean, is there enough securities regulation? That's something I would really have to study. Um, principle, I believe, there has to be securities regulation. That's our law, and we haven't receded from that. So is it? Uh, so let me let me just ask you a question. Let me let me just. You said it's something you have to. It's something you have to study, but. Something as simple as reading the Wall Street Journal would tell you that the IRS is more likely to audit a poor person who is taking advantage of the earned income tax credit than a multimillionaire. I'm not sure that that's a fair statement because the IRS has agents, for example, in the offices of General Motors every day or the offices of um, of Microsoft or IBM or Google every single day. So uh, the um, and they're aided tremendously by technology and they're aided by the private sector because uh, all of these companies like you and me have outside accountants um, and tax accountants who basically assist the IRS in doing their job. I mean, um and um, is that why Amazon paid zero taxes? Why Microsoft won't maybe. repatriate its money? I mean, so well, the problem I had, here's the problem. And I'll let you go. Money is not, repatriating its money in the case of Microsoft is not a uh, an IRS problem uh, that Amazon paid zero taxes. I would have to look at their returns and see whether they properly uh, claimed the benefit of the law. And um, if they had deductions that sheltered their income, they're entitled to that. Everyone's entitled to avoid taxes. You try to avoid taxes, too. You said you were uh, undergoing a divorce. If you have to pay alimony, you uh, have a tax shelter. So, so then how uh, can you complain about Roy Cohn ever paying taxes? I mean, here, here's the point. If there's no guardrails to prevent somebody, you know, why is it bad that Donald Trump won't release his tax returns? I think it is bad. It is bad. bad. It is bad. It is yeah, right. Terrible. And but, I think it's, it's even worse is uh, that the Supreme Court is sitting on the case and not deciding it because uh, the entitlement of the congressional committees and the district attorney, Cy Vance, to 
uh, his tax returns is really undisputable under the law. And they're giving Trump the benefit of a presidential immunity that's nowhere in the Constitution. You don't see the disconnect. You don't see the disconnect where, where I'm asking you. You don't like the fact that Donald Trump won't release his taxes. We've learned that his what, what little we know from David K. Johnson about Donald Trump's taxes is that he's been avoiding them since he was a kid. Uh, you find that offensive. But then you say, but everybody tries to avoid taxes and you don't seem too concerned about the IRS not being armed to take on the billionaire class. So it's a systemic problem that that I I think I'll let you get the last word. You're you're a guest on my show and I'm I'm going to turn the heat off. The Democrats controlled Congress at a time when uh, they could have increased the budget for the IRS. Uh, The House Means Committee considers this issue. So does the Senate Finance Committee. Uh, And uh, they came up with an answer now. In a democracy, David, uh, there are lots of answers that you and I might disagree with. But this is the price we pay for democracy. I mean, what is unfortunate about Trump is the whole idea of democracy is the majority ruled. And Hillary Clinton got three million more votes than Donald Trump in 2016. And Donald Trump became the president. Right. And what's interesting, further interesting, is that in 2016 in the hotel, when Trump knew he'd won the election, he turned to Cindy Adams in my interview to the columnist, a uh, great friend of Roy Cohn as well. Uh, and he, he said, uh, Cindy, if Roy were here, he never would have believed it. Now, that was 13 years after Cohn died. And then in the White House in 2017, uh, when McGahn uh, refused to um, uh, fire, McGahn, the White House counsel, refused to fire Sessions, um, for um, or persuade him not to recuse himself, he said uh, he lamented, Trump lamented, where's my Roy Cohn, which is the title of the movie I discussed with you right, earlier. So right. uh, Cohn was central. Um, um, after he was disbarred, Trump tried to distance himself from Cohn. Uh, when uh, there was a memorial service for Cohn, Trump was not asked to speak, and he stood in the background and um, uh, at the back of the room. Are you and, comfortable? Uh, are you comfortable with Donald Trump declaring an emergency, state of an emergency, and all the the powers uh, that come with it? I am comfortable because uh, the uh, statutes of Congress entitled him to declare an emergency. Now we'll have to. So far, he's not misused those powers. He's used them uh, studiously in connection with the pandemic, which at first he denied existed, and then he said he knew about it all along, but. If he were to use those powers to uh, freeze bank accounts, for example, to influence law enforcement, uh, to um, uh, do things that infringed on civil liberties, uh, or to quarantine people with no basis for it, uh, that would upset me greatly. Were so, you upset by the Patriot Act? The problem, the problem is... Were you upset by the Patriot Act? Well, I thought the Patriot Act uh, had many uh, features that were extremely important and uh, protected us in a time of, uh, uh, of, uh, of great difficulty. And uh, Do you think I Donald think, Trump should have been removed from office last month? Yes, I do. I think he uh, abused uh, his power as president of the United States. Okay. Uh, very interesting. Thank you. Uh, 
We've been talking with James Zyron, author of the book Plaintiff in Chief, A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits. I'm going to say something. I'll give you the last word, James. I hope you come back. And your son. Your son is amazing. Well, I'll call him up and ask him. I think he's amazing, too. Yeah, he writes for the nation. He covers sports for the yeah. nation. Brilliant writer. Does he share your politics? No, he's uh, far to the, I believe he's far to the left of uh, where I am, but I'm approaching it a little differently. I'm approaching it as a lawyer, and he's approaching it maybe the way you're approaching it, uh, with your, uh, somehow a feeling in your gut uh, that uh, Trump, for example, is an autocrat, and for that reason, everything he does is bad and, uh, and obnoxious. I think, and, too, I think we have too many lawyers in Washington. That's the problem. Well, I, I like I support lawyers. I mean, uh, I support the law. It's supported me all my life. So uh, why shouldn't I support the law? But, but I, I'm all for the law. I'm not for lawyers. I think lawyers pervert the law. Well, they could be. no. Well, they may uh, pervert or they may enforce the law or they may um, give us the benefit of the law. Well, this country wouldn't be what it, it is without the independence of the American bar. Uh, something which I think is... Uh, I, I agree with you that it wouldn't be what it is. I, I wish it weren't what it is. And I do agree with well, you that I the think, American bar I, is responsible think, for that. And I, the issue that I have with lawyers is they lack a moral compass. Well, I'm not saying know, we don't need lawyers. I'm not saying we don't need lawyers. What I'm saying is, like the police, they should be suspect. That lawyers should be suspect because they are trained to argue both sides of a case. And that's well, fine. Uh, that's fine. But there, at some point, we have to stop understanding evil. And that's why I think we're in trouble in Washington, D.C. It, it's, you know, uh, it's a uh, it's almost a prerequisite prerequisite in order to get elected to office that you're a lawyer. So they go, oh, he's a lawyer. We should he not. Well, that suggests to me that you're able to see both sides of an argument. Well, you know, Bernie Sanders has come quite close. He's not a lawyer. Uh, AOC is not a lawyer. Uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi is not a lawyer. It's not a it's not a prerequisite uh, by any means. Uh, and um, I just disagree with you. I think lawyers have always been an unpopular profession. Uh, we inherited our adversary system from the English because it's a much better system with all its flaws from the system in, that exists in Germany and in France. Where the judge is more of the interrogator. It's the more of a, more, the grand inquisitor. The, What's wrong we, with the grand inquisitor instead of... Uh, then we back to Torquemada if there's a grand inquisitor. Uh, the uh, uh, English, coming from Magna Carta, uh, came to the conclusion that the best way to get at the truth is to have two people on opposite sides of the issue arguing. These are professional advocates, and professionals can take uh, different sides of, the, of an issue. So you have lawyers like Chris Cuomo. You you have uh, Kellyanne Conway, who's a lawyer. She can take any side of any issue and argue argue lies i mean the the uh, idea that the adversarial debate to arrive at the truth are we arriving at a truth by arguing well that's in the court proceeding chris cuomo is taking up is not acting as a lawyer he's a partisan 
political commentator. But you're, you're speaking up for the adver- you're speaking up for the Kellyanne adversarial Kellyanne system Kellyanne of our courts, and I'm saying that it bleeds into our politics and our journalism, and I don't think well, that's healthy. I don't think. I don't think there are two sides to every story. I don't think you need a prosecutor and a defense attorney. I think you perhaps should take a page from the Germans or the French and and use a grand inquisitor who asks pointed questions because you end up with the Kellyanne Conways and these false equivalencies. And what we're ending up now with, there's no such thing as the truth anymore. Kellyanne Conway, I'm not sure she's a lawyer. Her husband's a lawyer. She's a lawyer. And he condemns Trump. She's never purported to be a lawyer. She was in uh, media, uh, right-wing media uh, publications or being a publicist before uh, Trump took her on. She's a Uh, a lawyer. And and, uh, so even if she's a lawyer, she's not acting as a lawyer in court, as an advocate. She's not advising a client. She's a media person. Uh, And... Chris Cuomo is not acting as a lawyer either. His brother, who's a lawyer, is doing a marvelous job, I think, in this crisis as uh, governor of the state of New York. I mean, is Lindsay, the- but, you know, they are lawyers. They have legal minds. Yeah, and, well, and it's I, a faux, it's faux intellectualism. It's, it's this not I- faux intellectualism because the law, dear David, uh, are the rules by which we all play. You said no one should have a defense counsel. Uh, that's guaranteed by the Constitution. I'm not so saying get rid. Of, I'm not saying get rid of lawyers. I'm saying that the adversarial system that you sing praises of, you say that helps us arrive at a truth, and I'm saying it doesn't help us arrive at truths when it bleeds into politics and journalism, and uh, there should be more guardrails. Well, maybe there should be more ethics. You know, the journalists don't have a canon of ethics the way lawyers do. Um, and uh, it bleeds into uh, politics. Politicians have no canon of ethics. They have the federal election law. Look how cavalier Trump has been about the federal election law and about accepting and welcoming aid from a, a foreign power. Uh, the Trump Tower meeting, which was well known as part of the Mueller investigation, Mueller gave him a pass on it, but it clearly violated the election law. So um, we have an, uh, and uh, also uh, you have uh, the United States Senate, which gave Trump uh, a pass on what were clearly impeachable offenses. And uh, I don't like it. Uh, and a democracy, there are many decisions we can disagree with. As Americans, we love to disagree uh, with jury verdicts. Did he really do it? Uh, was uh, the evidence somehow? Uh, twisted and um, uh, and argued improperly, or was it uh, um, engendered by passion and prejudice? Uh, and we love to do that, and we're entitled to do it. And that's part of free speech. And what you're expressing now is also part of free speech. Right. Very right. valuable. I just happen to disagree with you. Okay. Ralph Nader, who is the greatest American ever, uh, said that they should call it lawless school. I saw one of his lectures, and he said that law schools train lawyers to be lawless, not to uphold the law, but to help people circumvent it. What do you say to that? I disagree with him. Okay. I think law schools train um, lawyers, and they train lawyers by 
uh, teaching them uh, what the law is, how to interpret the law, how to argue uh, rationally and logically from rules of law and from fundamental principles, and uh, that um, uh, and to uh, reach conclusions which make sense uh, for society. If it weren't for lawyers, if it weren't for the law, we'd all be at one another's throats. We are at everybody's throats. Look at look at this. I I came. I invite you on my show, a friendly conversation, and I put you in the hot seat. Oh no! Well, that's that's just a convention. that's just a convention. But uh, if it weren't for the law, you wouldn't be divorced, and uh, that would be a bad thing. So uh, you're not the Actually, if if it weren't for the law, it would divorces could be settled in a much simpler way. Less well, that's another. That's another question uh, we could get into yep. at some time as to whether there should be more mediation and less right. litigation and family disputes. And uh, uh, I think that's certainly an open issue. There are many open issues in society. I don't claim the law has cured all the ills of society. Uh, and um, have you uh, ever met a divorce lawyer you didn't want to drown? Well, uh uh, quite apart from that, I think uh, you uh, taking me back to Hamlet uh, and the graveyard scene uh, where uh, um, Hamlet holds up the skull of, of the lawyer and he says uh, to Horatio, are these the lawyer's bones? Where is he now? His quiddities and his quillets and his tricks. Mm. And or you look at uh, later on when um, he does his to be and not to be uh, soliloquy. One of the things he condemns in life is the law's delay. Now, that's 1616, and I don't know that it's gotten much better now. You're putting your finger on some of the same issues that Shakespeare was writing about. Uh, and um, the, uh, you know, Sandberg, why does the hearse horse snicker when the lawyer cashes in? Uh, <laughs> we, don't, we don't like lawyers, David. And um, I'm glad you're the comedian that made you laugh, but... Uh, we, uh, we don't like lawyers. And the reason we don't like lawyers is because we think they're ministers of what are often unjust results, and we think they're doing it for money. And I think that uh, in many ways, those are, that's a fair criticism, and in many ways, it's an unfair criticism. So you, as lawyers would say, you have to take it on a case-by-case basis. James Zirin is author of the book Plaintiff-in-Chief, A Portrait of Donald Trump in 3,500 Lawsuits. Go buy this book. Thank you very much, James. Stay on the line for one quick second. Do you have a Twitter account or is there anything you want to plug? I do. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's at Jim Zirin. Great, great. Stay on the line for one second. 